it already. Where's Pastor Ryan? What do they do with Pastor Ryan? Well, Pastor Ryan is here, but he's not here. I am here, and it's great to be with you. I'm Pastor Dave Ruthison, and I just want to, oh, thank you. Oh, please, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. Um, I just wanted to, since I know many of you, but I don't know some of you, I wanted to take the opportunity just to introduce myself, tell you a little bit about me, and we can get to know each other, at least you can get to know me, because I can't ask you all about yourself. But I'd like to uh, put a couple of pictures on the screen to introduce my family. First of all, there's my lovely wife, Crescent, and I. There's a picture of us. And uh, we have been married for 27 years, and our engagement, thank you, our engagement anniversary was Valentine's Day, so that was a great day for us. I know, it's very precious. Then here's a picture of my family. Uh, on a vacation, and there are my kids. The one on the right, my, well, the right of the picture, is Tyler. He's 19. He goes to Taylor University, and he is studying engineering. My son in the red is Jordan, and he is 17, a junior in high school. My daughter, Talia, is 15, down on the left, and she's a freshman in high school. Now, that's my family. And uh, I have been uh, at Harvest now. Our family has been here since July. So we've only been here for about seven and a half months. But in that short time, we as a family just really want to thank you because of the great warmth and welcome that you have shown us as a family, the way you've helped us adjust and get involved here and um, really uh, been hospitable. You've been like a family to us, very warm and inviting, and we really appreciate it. You've helped us to connect and adjust very quickly. But you've also been like an army to us. We've watched... We've watched you, and we've watched what, through the power of God, that this church has done, and what you've built a, uh, a life-changing place in six years. We're very taken aback and excited to join uh, arms with you, so to speak, and be a part of the work that God has here. So thank you very much from the bottom of our heart in not only your love to us, but your faithfulness to God in carrying out his work. We're very blessed. Thank you. <clears throat> This series we're in in James is going to be great. It's, uh, I felt like last week, for many of us, it was a game changer. We uh, heard Pastor Ryan help us to embrace trials by, he used a phrase, worshiping louder. When hardship knocks at our front door, don't let joy slip out the back door. He said, remain under the weight of the trial, be steadfast, so that God will do his perfecting work in our faith. We know a muscle gets stronger when it's resisted, right? When it faces resistance. So, as James 1, 2 tells us, consider it pure joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. And Ryan outlined uh, in James that the words behind me are the trials that James refers to, the various trials. Pastor Ryan pointed out that joy isn't the only emotion we will find in our pain and in our trials, and that the joy we have doesn't come from the pain, but from God's plan. Many of us will never forget from last week to worship louder when we are under testing and hardship. It's a game changer. What a wonderful uh, gift that God gave us in his word. Now, the letter of James lays out these words uh, for us that, that James talks about different areas of trials that we'll face. And I'm just curious, we did this in our small group, I asked our small group, how many of you have faced trials in the last month 
in any of these areas, hardship, testing, difficulty in any of these areas. So I thought it would be interesting for us to do that now. So in the last month, money, college bills, debt, choices, finances, whether it's your fault or somebody else's fault, how many of you would say, yeah, it's been tough the last month. I've faced trials related to money, okay? How about sickness? Health is a prevailing issue in my family or my extended family, okay? Words. Words have been used against me or by me, perhaps, that have caused problems or trials. Or trials. Ooh, look at that one, okay? Love. I'm not being loved well. I'm not loving well. There's conflict in the area of love for people, okay? Time. All, all these issues, time intensifies all of it. When is it all going to end? How about time? Yeah. And then conflict. What conflict? Okay. Well, all those hands should tell us something that God is at work among us. Right? If we are facing these trials, and if the plan is to test our faith, then that pain is proof that God is working. A lot of hands went up. That's a blessed thing. It's a hard thing. And God says to worship louder through it. Here's what's next. Let's look at the screen and open your Bibles to James 1, 5 through 8. And this is what happens next in the passage. Now what I'd like us to do, because I'd like everybody to read this, and I'm going to have us all read it out loud together from the screen, okay? So James 1, 5 through 8. Read it out loud with me if you would. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. God's word, thank you, Lord, for your word and may it minister to us. Let's pray together. Great and mighty Lord, we uh, just witnessed that you are working by the show of hands. There is a pressure and a prodding and a testing and a pain and a stress and some even a, a ruin that it feels like that many in this room are feeling. Now, Lord, to your glory, may this room of people be brimming over with joy in response that your hand is on them, even with pressure. May we worship louder. May we be doers of the word and not just hearers. But, Lord, we really need you and your help. We need wisdom. We we don't know how to put it all together. Sometimes we get confused, we lose focus, and sometimes that happens multiple times every day. We love you. We need you. We want you. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts, Lord, for your plan to salvage our lives and to make something wonderful out of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. I want to remain steadfast in hard times, it's saying to us. I want to worship louder. I want to so that my faith proves genuine and becomes more complete, but I lack the wisdom, putting it all together. I don't always get stuck in knowing what to do, but it's a matter of what to do when, 
when to do what, with who, and how much, and how often, and the tangle of all of it, and especially as more and more piles in, it's hard, and it's, I, I don't know where to start. It's like when there's a mess in the kitchen, where do you start? You know, sometimes there's a mess in the house, where do you start? Things like this happen to us. We've all experienced, and maybe all at the same time, bills keep coming. The brakes need to be fixed, and house projects are piling up. Then there's my spouse. How do I understand her and love her better? My kids, what do I teach them? How do I lead them? What do I do? How do I keep up with all this? My friends and family keep coming with requests. My aunt just died. My brother is in the hospital. We don't know how it's all going to turn out. There's a conflict at work, and it's taking its toll. Words at home are getting poisonous. Some people in my life are tough to love. I've never been a drinker, but no, no. My kids' grades, I'm not sure what to think. It just keeps piling in, doesn't it? My daughter, why is she treated like that at school? And at church, really? I thought this was going to be a safe place, Lord. How long, oh Lord, is this going to last? And how much more is coming? And then, as that weight comes down on me, I might say things like this. You might as well. Plus, Lord, my relationship with you is kind of lousy right now. I fall so, so short of your standards. Lord, I'm letting you down, 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 down. Echoes in your head. Lord, I'm letting you down. And the Lord speaks up and he says, you're not letting me down because you were never holding me up. You were never holding me up. I hold you up with the mighty power of my righteous right hand. I hold you up. There's 500 or so of us, one church, one town. God's got 7 billion more like us, and he holds all of our stuff with one hand. One hand. He can hold it all, and he doesn't even break a sweat. If any of you are stuck, unsure what the next steps are, overwhelmed, even ruined, even ruined, if you lack wisdom, the know-how and what to do, let him ask God. Why don't you write this down in your notes? When pain or pressure strike, run to God immediately. When pain or pressure strike, run to God immediately. When something tries to steal your joy, when the pile of things squeeze it out, When you feel the pain or pressure or sting or crush, as soon as you feel it, as soon as it starts to push in, as soon as the anxiety kicks, as soon as you feel it at all, run to God immediately. And I love when the the Bible understates something, and I think it understates the uh, verse here just a little bit, because it's it's God and and it's it's something so big, He's something so someone so big that you just say it plainly. And so, for example, in Psalm 100, I love Psalm 100, it's an exploding with power psalm. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. So what we just experienced in worship with 
the worship team, all right, us times millions more, the whole earth get together and let's do this. That's pretty, pretty explosive. Come into his presence with singing. His love endures forever. We are his people. It just keeps building and building and building. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Because, why? Because, and then this is where it gets understated, the Lord is good. Really? Good? All that? There's just not a word that kind of puts that all into a package. You know, the Lord is good. Okay, he's good. You know, and then this is what James is doing here. If we lack the wisdom to navigate and manage and, and, you know, just the stuff piles in. Let him, what? What should I do? What should I do? Ask God. Ask God. Ask God? God. God? God. Ask God? Yeah. Pretty understated. First Peter 5, 7 raises the intensity a little. It gives us help on what asking may look like. It says, cast your anxieties, and your cares on him because he cares about you. Cast. I was a a baseball player, so I think of of it in these terms. Throw, whip, fling, bombard. For me, um, casting my cares upon him has been a bit frenzied at times. Um, I, I tend to whip things at him, not cast things at him. Even prayed to him like this before, Lord, sorry, I'm just going to start to fling these things at you because I know you can handle it. I don't know what else to do. I'm not, I just, ah, I know you can handle it. I'm just going to start whipping this at you. Maybe of a trial or a pressure or an issue that can be brought to God. You can just walk it up and hand it to him. Maybe it needs to be thrown because there's so many things and the pile is getting so deep. But maybe there's even that one thing that makes your knees buckle. It's just too heavy to lift. Let him know this one's too heavy. Would you come and pick it up for me? Let him ask God. <clears throat> Looking at the, at the verses, we could stop here and I'll go, go home. If any of you lacks wisdom, let, let them ask God. All right, let's go home. Got it. Let's do it. But James wanted us to get more out of this. There's more. James wanted us to think big thoughts about God. Why should I ask him for help? Is he good enough? Is he big enough? So in your notes, you can write this down. Run to God because he's generous and selfless. Why do we run to God? He's generous and selfless. He gives to all generously, it says in the, in the verses, verse 5. He's generous and selfless. We've all experienced generosity in some form, I hope. <clears throat> My first memory where I was overwhelmed by generosity was in eighth grade when I got a piano from my parents as a graduation gift. <gasps> you know, it just stopped me in my tracks. Most recently, the picture of us by the water that you saw earlier was when Crescent's parents took the whole family, all 20 of us, on a 50th anniversary Florida vacation. If your parents are in the room, ask them to do that. See how that goes. (laughs) Oh, very generous, very blessed. All 20 of us got to experience the flights, 
the Disney cruise, the hotel on the beach, the snorkeling, the food, the activities, the alligators, all as a gift. Unbelievable generosity. Generosity has a way of stopping me in my tracks to think about the character traits of the person that was generous towards me. It also has a calming and humbling effect. You kind of stop and you, you, you reflect on your life. You think about it and you realize, wow, this is, I don't, I don't deserve, wow. And it calms you down and helps you to focus and um, helps you to be, be uh, humble before the person that has been generous to you. It also creates lifelong memories, doesn't it? Now, in God's giving nature, we could make a whole list of his generosity to, to us, couldn't we? He's given us the beauty and variety of creation. Unbelievable. He's given us our very lives. He's given us eternal life through his son. He's given us his word. Because of his generosity, I have the the life I have. I have the job I have because of God's generosity. I have the family that I have. I have the friends that I have. I have the house that I have. I have the life that I have. It's all because of God's generosity. Eternal memories. The word generous in here, though, also carries an idea of God not only being giving, but with a preoccupation with concern for the other person. It's embedded in the Greek word, okay? It's not only that, oh, he just gives a lot, but he is single, single-mindedly focused on the welfare and he's concerned for the other person. He's all in in giving what it is that we need, as if there was nothing else for him to do. Picture on the screen is a storm scene from Hurricane Katrina. And as you can see, back in 2005, that person needs a lot of generous help. I was uh, able to be on a part of four different teams down south on Katrina Relief from 2005 and following. The first time there, we worked on a house north of New Orleans that uh, for a man who had 66 trees blown down on his property. Debris everywhere. And he had a day to finish cleaning it up for the the federal government to clear all of it. Otherwise, he had to figure out what to do with all that. He had just finished his 30th radiation treatment for stage 9 prostate cancer, and it was 95 degrees out and incredibly humid. Yesterday was his last treatment. Today, from 6 a.m. until he got done, he was shoveling and carrying and cutting and trying to clear 66 trees off of his property. And I just kind of walked up to him My job was to find work for 42 people. It was only three weeks after the storm, and everything was just, you know, chaotic and in disarray. So they had some work for us. We had to go find more work. So we walked up to this guy, and we're like, do you need any help? And he's like, oh, yeah, I could could use some help. (laughs) The understatement of the world. And so 42 of us put in, in a little over an afternoon, over 200 man hours for him, and we cleared it all. What I, I mean... I'm sure it was a blessing to him. It was such a blessing to us to be able to give like that. So good example of generosity, but a good example of we didn't want anything in return. It was our joy to help him. He needed it, and there was nothing he could do. We didn't want payback. We didn't want notoriety. It was for him, only for him. We were single-minded, and God's generosity is like that. It's for us. He's very single-minded, as if there was nothing else for him to do. 
So write this down. Not only is God generous and selfless, James wants us to think big thoughts about God. He also wants us to know that God is gracious and he's willing to help. He's gracious and willing. The, the, the verse talks about um, God gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. God really, really wants to help. This was one idea that came out of this passage for me that's like a rock hitting the pond. God is basically untapped. All that power, all that glory, all that strength. And if we all asked him for everything we could ask him for and go to him for everything, he wouldn't even break a sweat. He really, really wants to give. He really wants to help. And he doesn't give, this is what without reproach means, he doesn't give based on merit or past performance by us. He doesn't look and, you know, see if we're deserving. He just gives and he helps. We haven't earned it. We haven't deserved it. It, Without reproach carries the idea that he doesn't hold it against us that we lack wisdom. He doesn't hold it against us that we made some decisions with our finances or with our words or withholding love or giving love to the wrong person. He doesn't hold that against us when we ask for his help. He gives us his help. So nothing is standing in the way of freely asking. So this is where the the passage starts to pivot a little bit. God's sincerity here is unquestioned. His mind is clear and focused. And the question that James is about to raise is about my sincerity and your sincerity in asking. That's what James wants to point point out. And the passage takes us there in great little bit more length as we go on. Do I really want his help or do I just want him to do what I want? Just get this pain off me. That won't help you. Just get it off me. Do I really want his help or do I really just want him to take it all away? Do I really want to grow or do I want to just keep living the same way and hope for a different result? Our difficulties are are big at times, aren't they? One person, one family, one church, one town, one area, God can handle seven billion times more than our load. And, And he sent his son to carry our sorrows, to bear our infirmities, to heal us by his wounds, to take away our sins. And he doesn't even get tired. And he wants to help us. And he wants to do way more for us than he is currently doing. He wants to do more for me and you, and he wants to do more for our church than he's doing now. That's like a rock hitting the pond for me, an idea that just keeps spreading as I think about it. What does that mean? How would we live into that? How would we press into that? God wants to give us more. He wants to do more for us and, uh, and produce Christ in us more intensely and make a bigger impact. So God works a job where he's underutilized, you might say. Have you ever worked a job where you were underutilized, where they didn't tap into your full potential? Let's tap into God's full potential. Let's try to wear him out. Let's try to wear him out. Could we do it? No. Let's try to weary him. Let's try to uh, make him say enough. His love is too great. His power is too great. That will never happen. 
That's why we ask, because God is so generous. He doesn't hold us with reproach. Write this down in your notes. How do we ask? There's two things that James wants us to see here. One of them is confess you need him. Confess you need him. If you lack wisdom, ask God, it says in verse 5. If we don't think we need him, why would we ask him? We don't think we need him. Why would we ask him? Jesus said in Matthew 18, 3, unless you become like a little child, you can't go to heaven. Unless you become like a little child, you can't go to heaven. A little child wants his parents. A little child needs his parents. A little child couldn't last more than a few days without them. So many people believe in God the way that I believe that the walls in this room are white. It makes no difference once I leave this room what I believe. And a lot of people believe in God like that. But Romans 10.9 tells us that if we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved, right? I want Jesus to be Lord. I need Jesus to be Lord. I need him to be raised from the dead. I, I want to be saved by him. We need to be saved by him. Maybe you have rejected him your whole life. Your sins are piled high against him. He will be generous toward you and not hold you in contempt for how long it's been. If you ask him to help you, if you tell him, confess you need him, he won't hold it against you. And he'll rush in to help you. And he'll save you. One of the things that's important for us to know is that our need for him is a bigger issue than our trial. Our need for him is a bigger issue than our suffering, our hardships, and our pain. Some of the wisdom that we'll receive when we ask God is to focus on bigger issues than our own pain. It'll be like coming up out of the water and getting air for your soul. There are big issues we face. Maybe there's things are being spread about you that are said and are unfair and untrue. Those are big issues. Maybe you want vindication because it's just plain wrong and nothing's being done about it. Maybe you're going to lose your job over it, your home. Maybe you're going to have to move. Those are big issues. But there are bigger issues than these. A grateful heart is a bigger issue. Humility before God that no matter how badly I'm being treated, it's still better than I deserve because of my sins that put Christ on the cross. Bigger issue that God is still on the throne. I remember my oldest son um, at a youth group at a former church. He had some conflicts and the issues were tough, big. He was frustrated. He finally came home one day and he said, Dad, I don't care if I ever step foot in another church again. Bigger issues. You've got to cling to those bigger issues at that moment. Confess your need for God. What are the bigger issues? I'm like, uh, uh, you know, um, the local church is the hope of the world through Christ. It's a bigger issue than the pain my son experienced. The gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus who is building his church. That's a bigger issue. Being thankful to God for all that he has done in spite of the yucky is a bigger issue. My continued growth as a disciple 
is a bigger issue. And not stepping foot in another church again is not on the table. We don't respond like that. We don't respond by worshiping softer. We respond by worshiping louder. We don't respond by saying to our pain, I don't need you. I'm going to stop worshiping, walking, or working. We worship, walk, and work for Christ even when disillusioned. Now the chapter takes a turn here, and I want to focus the rest of our time on this. How do we ask God? We ask in faith. The passage says, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. If you're like me, you're already kind of stuck there like, oh no. I think this morning I already doubted God at least five times in some small way or maybe a big way. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. I asked, but I'm not going to get anything. But it says he shouldn't assume or expect or suppose. God's so generous, he may do it anyway because he's that generous and it's his call to make. But don't expect to if you kind of have a foot in both worlds, so to speak. And then it says, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Write this down in your notes. We ask by confessing where we don't want him. We confess where we don't want him. That's what the idea of double-minded starts to come in. I need you, but I now want to look at where I don't want you because we're double-minded. Ask in faith with no doubting. A double-minded person starts to hear in this passage, ask God, yeah, he's going to give, he's so generous, ask God. A double-minded person can start to hear that God is a magic genie in a bottle, And so that person doesn't pray, he wishes, he hopes, keeps his fingers crossed. This person wants God to line up with him rather than for him to line up with God. Now when James says doubt here, he means this. He means a basic inconsistency in attitude and spirit compared to an occasional doubt or lapse. Sometimes we doubt. That's not what James is referring to. He's talking about a, a, a... a basic inconsistency in believing God, in going to God. A double-minded person is a divided soul that leads to thinking, speaking, acting in a way that contradicts one's claim to belong to God. This person probably won't ask for anything of substance from God and should not suppose that he will receive anything of substance. God is so generous, like I said, it's his call to make but the double-minded man shouldn't expect it. One example of double-mindedness, unfortunately, is illustrated in this picture on the screen. Many of us will remember the days, weeks, and even months after 9-11 where these signs were all over. They were on so many windows, so many businesses, so many posts. God bless America. Could be found everywhere. Many of us hoped that this would be the start of a revival the, the country had been attacked, and now the country is going to turn back to God. We started to call out to God, God, bless us, bless us. But where are those appeals now in our country? And you could even say, where were they a couple of months after, right? Looking to God's wisdom one day and man's wisdom the next is double-minded. It's a good example. 
Faith looks like Job 1, where Job just lost more than any, most of us could imagine. He lost family, he lost health, he lost wealth, and he responded by worshiping louder. He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Single-mindedness looks like Jesus' words in Matthew 26, where he is agonizing in the garden, about to be crucified, and he goes to God and he says, but not my will, yours be done. And because of the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross for me and for you, and he endured the suffering, and it has had such an incredible effect on us and on so many others. Right here is where the passage really starts to pry and dig down deep. This is where it starts to get a little painful, especially as God, in his love and in his wisdom, as he offers himself to us, he starts to press in a little deeper into my heart. It's kind of like unjamming a copy machine. You get the paper out and you think it's all good, and then you put another, try to make another copy and it gets stuck again, and then you open it up. And you have to open it up, and deep down you pull out a little piece. Okay, got it. Then you close it up, make another copy, you get stuck again. You got to open it up again, and there's still another piece. You ever had that experience? It's like frustrating. You want to throw the copy machine out the window. There's still little pieces behind that are hard to find. They still jam up the machine. And that is what the word is starting to do to us now when it says a double-minded person is unstable in all their ways. So we can ask God in faith by locating an area in our own lives of double-mindedness. Many of us us have acted double-minded by putting our spouse or our kids on the throne of our lives. I've done this. I've worshipped my wife. She makes a great wife, but a lousy God. I've worshipped my kids. They make great kids, but lousy gods. They just don't get it done. They just don't meet my needs. I can't control it. Only God can. Then your kids start making decisions that put you in trial mode. Try having some teenagers. Your joy can slip out the back door. And you start to notice when they go down, you go down with them. Your joy starts to escape. You start to have to ask the question, is my joy based on the decisions of my kids or is, my, is the joy of the Lord my strength? When your kids make lousy decisions, it can reveal if you have them on the throne, it can open you up and God can put his hand on that little paper jam and say, they make lousy gods but great kids. And your joy is based on their decisions. Don't let your joy be based on the decisions of others. Don't let your joy be based on your circumstances. Let it be based, the joy of the Lord is our strength. So we know the story, a lot of us do anyway, of Jesus and Peter. Peter, great servant of the Lord, but double-minded, especially around the time of Jesus' crucifixion. One day he says, Lord, I'll die for you. The next day, he doesn't even know who Jesus is. He denies him three times. Peter was double-minded. We can relate to Peter in so many ways. And at the end of the book of John, 
Jesus comes up to Peter and he opens him up and he reaches in to pull out some of the paper jams. And he reaches in and touches Peter and he says, do you love me? And Peter says, yeah, I love you. And he reaches in and again and he pulls out another one and he says, do you love me? He does that three times. That's what God is doing to us right here. He's reaching into our double-mindedness. He wants us to identify areas where there's a paper jam, where we're double-minded. And he's got his hand on it. Maybe he's even speaking to you right now about it. I know he is to me. Do you love me? I love you, but I want to keep it. That's our double-mindedness at work. So when was the last time I confessed sin in my life? When was the last time I confessed sin? Hmm. 1 John 1.8 tells me, if we say we have no sin, we are calling God a liar and his truth is not in us. So it's, if it's been months and months since I've confessed sin, am I saying I have no sin? Am I double-minded in what God says about sin? Ouch. One reason for my pain and my trials might be to root out my indifference to my disobedience. Jesus reaches in and he says, do you love me? Double-mindedness can look like this. I'll worship Christ, but on my terms when I want. I'll walk with Christ, but on my terms how I want. I'll work for Christ, but on my terms. We can let American cultural values of independence and individualism affect our discipleship. God leads us through his word, and he, he appoints elders to be our leaders. And we say we want to listen to God, But then we say when our church leaders speak, thanks for your opinion. We've all done this. We want to make disciples, but thanks, but I'll do it my way. When we say we want to listen to God, but then when we don't listen to our leaders, that's double-minded. Hebrews tells us, don't make their life difficult, your leaders that God has placed there, by not listening to them. Jesus might reach into you and tug on that one, this paper jam, and say, do you love me? He presses in even further. God calls us to call, God continues to call us out and dig when he says, Dave, how can I give you forgiveness when you are not, in fact, concerned with forgiving others? Do you love me? How can I give you mercy when you have no interest in being merciful? You're double-minded. Do you love me? How can I strengthen you in hardship when you have no intention of addressing your anger? How can I make this trial work and and prove your faith when you have no intention of changing your financial habits? You have no intention of bringing God an offering. You have no intention of softening your words. God is saying to me and you, how can I make you my disciple when you have no intention of listening to me? And he presses on the spots in our hearts where that's starting to fester, and he says, do you love me? How can I give you wisdom in your trials when you don't really mean what you are praying? James tells us, if we need the ability to apply truth rightly to the various parts of our lives, wisdom, ask God in faith, not being double-minded, The book of Hebrews tells us 
to boldly come before the throne of grace, that you may receive grace or mercy in your time of need. Maybe your trials are because of your choices. Then boldly come before the throne of grace to receive his mercy. Maybe you need strength because of somebody else's choices, or maybe you know trials just happen and there's really nobody to blame. And you need his help, you need his grace. You haven't earned it, you haven't deserved it, he's not going to hold it against you, he invites you to come. He says, boldly come before the throne of grace. God is willing, he is generous, he wants to help. He wants to do more than we can ask or imagine. You know, the king has invited us to his table. The king, the king, the king has invited us to his table. How many times when the king has invited me have I declined or not even acknowledged the offer? The king has invited me. Boldly come in. I want you. What if we busied up God? What if we glorified him by drawing more and more of his strength into our church and into our families and into our individual lives? What I want to do as we end the service is um, just have prayer. I want to ask the prayer team, though, to come up, even right now, and um, then just invite us to pray. You know, we have an opportunity. We're going to get to pray by singing along with the worship team and the song they're going to do. And maybe that's a way that you can ask God for wisdom. Maybe you need to come for prayer to confess your need for Christ. Maybe you've never confessed your need for Christ for the first time. Prayer team will be up here, and you can come to them and ask them for help. Maybe you want to pray with, with your spouse right there in your seat, or you could come up to the front. You don't have to, but maybe right now it's a great time to pray with your family, with your wife or husband, with your kids, and just say, Lord, we need you. We need to give everything to you. We want to draw out your strength. We need your strength in our family. Maybe you want to boldly approach the king and say, Lord, thanks for the invitation. Just thank you. Really kind of you. Really generous of you. And I want to acknowledge that by just saying thank you. Stay in your seat and tell him. Come up to the stairs and tell him. Boldly approach the king by singing or by praying.